Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So today, my guest is James Schromberg, and James is one of the owners of The Second Visit. In The Second Visit, if you haven't seen them online, go and have a look. They're a group who help physios in private practice develop from their junior years to being senior practitioners. Um, and we'll talk about that. Um, he, James has an extensive history of education, engagement, and, um, and research as well. We'll talk about that. Um, we'll throw to him for some highlights in a second of, of all the extensive work he's done. You can see it in his bio online, so I won't go and read it all out. I, I'm, I am um, keen to get him on. I'm also welcome back. I also want to say welcome back to the Part-Time Physio Foundation's co-host, Susanna Perriton. Susanna's on the call. Hello, Susanna. Nice to be back. She's back. And let's get James on as soon as possible. So James Schromberg, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thanks, Luke. Great to see you and Susanna again. It's always nice to catch up with people I respect, have respected for many years. And it's, yeah, looking forward to the chat. And likewise, we've got a lot of mutual, uh, a lot of mutual interests, a lot to talk about. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Um, just for everyone's interest, your background. So you've done <laughs> you've done a lot of work. So you've been a practice owner for many years. Graduated yep. in the um, before us. When, when when did you first become a physio? Oh, well before you two. Um, yeah. Graduated in uh, end of '89. So I started mm. practicing in 1990. It's a wealth of experience. You've you've done lots of you've done consulting work for our work cover, the Workers' Compensation Group in Australia. Um, you've done obviously university teaching, you've been an advisor for the Australian Health Professions Registration Authority. And what I really want to talk about today is your work with up and coming physios, new graduates, because that's the audience of the podcast, students and new graduates. There's lots of people who are beyond those years who are interested as well, people who are trying to get into the university um, education role, for example. So there's a diverse audience, but it's really those grads I want to really help. so it, what have I missed in my introduction? Anything else that you'd add? People no. can read about you? No, they can read about me. I guess the um, things that probably were uh, two extremes of my career was, you know, I was national chair of MPA too, which I would be loved doing being, I learned very quickly I wasn't great at politics. That's the only thing. I, I, I was too much of a straight shooter. Um, and certainly you know, I love working with, I love being a, member of the APA who I think, you know, is actively engaged in supporting the profession. But yeah, you've got to be a good politician to do that, um, mm. which I'm not. And uh, the other thing was it ended up working in Hollywood, which was a lot of fun too. So yeah, um, writing scripts. So I always say to f- people, physiology, you just never know where your career is going to take you. If somebody told me I'd be 31 sitting in, uh, working in a Hollywood um, film studio, writing scripts for um for films um i would have laughed at them but it's for it takes you sometimes you just never know where your journey's going to go so didn't know that susanna did yeah. you know that mm. so what happened uh, oh i just ended up working two years part-time um we had two very well I had a baby and a toddler um so it was an interesting time trying to juggle um you know running from literally uh Beverly Hills to Adelaide to uh, to live my life with my and my wife was staying stayed at home with the two little kids but uh, we had to make a big decision whether we'd move completely across to USA or stay in Adelaide and to be honest after living in US uh, living in LA as much as I loved it um, it was a bit surreal we probably thought it wasn't a great choice to bring up kids but it was a lot of fun it was it was no doubt a lot of fun to do that. And, you just never know. That's the thing. I guess that's what I love about our profession. You, you, you know, it was my profession that led me to writing scripts. Who would have thought that that would happen as a physio? So, yeah. There are so many guests on the podcast who have talked about their backstory and the places they've gone to as a result of yeah. getting this degree that's very portable and you can travel and, and you can do so many different things. So have hope, dear listener, if you're stuck in a rut, there's so much you can oh. do. And look, even more so now, I mean, I think the opportunities that are for young clinicians now are so much more diverse than when any of us graduated. Um, it was it was really private 
practice or hospitals really with a few other things but now even hospitals are so much more diverse and private practice is so much more diverse and all the other areas of, of physiotherapy are so diverse and so many of my friends now who started as physios way back you know have changed their career paths use their physio skills but are actually not necessarily clinicians anymore not even physios now they're working in executive positions leadership positions outside of the profession um mm. yeah there's a, there's a lot of transferable skills we get from you know working with patients dealing with people all day every day you get hopefully skilled at it if you like last long enough and that's very transferable yeah well that's one of the skills that we dive into and what we're going to talk about here on this episode is there's not just the opportunities for people in the profession but the priority areas according to james <laughs> according to well many many years of experience and what you yeah. do in the second visit and what you're trying to do those priority areas that 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 grads need to work on because you, you, yeah. you do your foundational degree it's it's foundational knowledge and skills your your entry to practice degree and then the learning begins as the cliche goes um, and you've got this unique perspective on what um, what practice owners in particular are looking for in grads and i think that's really valuable for our audience um susanna jump in i'm going I'm to get us started and you jump in with questions and and into the topics as we go so the, the, we we settled on this topic uh on this title for the episode sorry are we undercharging our clients and underpaying our clinicians and this was a LinkedIn post from James that I saw and I sent him a message and said, this is a good episode. Let's do it. Um, so first question, I guess, is what's the answer to that question, James? We, where, where did this perhaps bring the listener in on the, on the post that you did, a small video, and why this was a topic that made you want to post that video? And what were your main points? Oh, look, context was, because um, I work with practice, practice owners and practitioners all around Australia and overseas too. And so it's not, firstly, it's not unique to Australia. Um, it's it's everywhere, all the countries I work in. Um, a lot of practice owners uh, are feeling a lot of pressure from young clinicians who want to earn more um, and want to earn more, but don't perhaps quite understand the costs with running a practice and that there really isn't that much fat on the end of uh, fat of the lamb. And uh, I, to me, it was actually just trying to just redress hope in some small way, just to explain that you can earn. And so we should earn a lot more money than we do, but we've got to actually earn our stripes first. And I don't mean earn your stripes by just being present and being in a practice or in a hospital, wherever you are, but my area is private practice. Just sitting in a private practice for years doesn't give you an entitlement to earn more than the next clinician. It's the results you get. And that's really what I was talking about. And I've seen great young clinicians really early get great results for their clients. But also conversely, I've seen some really experienced clinicians just do the same thing, Groundhog Day, week in, week out, year in, year out, who just don't get it that it's not actually just because you're sitting there working there. You've actually, your market is the one who dictates your wage. It's not the practice owner. Um, and if you've got a practice owner and you've got an empty list and you've been there for a long time and you ask for a wage rise, well, it's just that th th there is no fat on the land. So I, I, I think two things is you've got to be good at what you do. And, sec and it's not an age-dependent thing. I do think that there is some correlation definitely with experience. As long as the experience is constantly, as you're, you're adding your experience, you're going to end up getting busier anyway. But it's not an experience thing. It's basically the results you get. And that's measured by the, by the clients referring word of mouth and coming back to see you again for repeat treatment or for repeat new problems, old problems recurred, et cetera. The reality is full lists, you should go and ask if your employer hasn't given you a wage rise already, you should have been asking. You'd not be wondering why, but it's the, the final step, I guess, on that whole conversation was, I often have conversations with practice owners about, sorry, with physio practice practices, because the owners have awkward conversations because the reality is, when you're a internal, when you're actually a physio, when you're hearing your boss talk about 
if they do about wages, profitability. They there's always clouded by the fact is, oh, you just want to be busy. Sorry, you just want me to be busy so you can make a lot more money. You, you're just doing this because you want to get more profit. I don't think a lot of them understand how expensive it is to run a practice and understand the cost. So I actually sit down with a lot of practices and talk about how much it costs to run a practice and why every time you just want to increase the percentage of the fees, how that just is putting a knife in the heart of a, of a practice owner. You know, there are better ways that both parties can win. Um, you know, I talk about ways that you can get earned more as a clinician, but at the same time, you actually, the employer will benefit from that too, rather than it being every time I get a higher wage, because I want one, um, it comes at the detriment of the practice. Because there are many practices out there who are struggling to make money, to, to even pay themselves a wage. And I think that's often a shock. I'd say a third of the practice owners I work with haven't taken wages for a year. Now, how many how many employees would do that? Wow. I mean, nor should they, but that's the case. I've got friends who had to sell their homes to pay wages oh, wow. for their staff. That's yeah, it, it's 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 um, yeah, it is scary that, and I think there is that misperception that there's this mysterious pot of money that practice owners are holding to actually to make these fortunes and yeah they might drive in in their old hyundai but they're actually at home drive ferraris and porsche 911 carreras my point is that's not the reality and i just think we need to get we we, we're definitely an underpaid profession i i think for the amount of intelligence we have collectively i do think that we horribly are underpaid but in the end the public's got to decide if we're worth the money that we want to get Mm. And not all of us are equal. Just it's not all of us are equal. Some of us deservedly should get paid more than others. Yeah, I mean, you, you get a lot of people, whether it's family, friends, or just people that you meet, um, just asking you for for advice on something, and you just they go on not getting paid, but they expect it to be, you know, anything that's sort of medical, um, they expect it to be for free, and then you know you'll have. Uh, patients, clients, et cetera, sort of complaining about some fees, um, yet they're happy to pay five to $10,000 for a brand new TV and don't even blink. You know, they're, they're happy to get uh, people to come to their house to quote for, you know, replacing a toilet and without doing anything and just giving you a coat and just the fact that they've showed up, you know, that they're happy to pay the 100 bucks or something, you know, whereas just to go see a physio, any sort of allied health, any medical, um, people just don't want to pay for that. And it's also seen in sport. Um, I've seen oh, yeah. firsthand, you know, for example, let's say a football club, if they get extra money, where does that extra money go? It goes to coaches. Then it will go to players. Then it will go to every single other staff before it even gets into the medical. So, um, and and that's at a professional level. So then when you get to the sort of grassroots, you're almost expected to volunteer um, your time. I know a particular uh, doctor who he was at a football club um, and, you know, he was studying to be a sports physician. Uh, I think he was a couple of years out and um, this particular club, because he was the third doctor, uh, he said, well, how much am I going to get paid? <laughs> and they, they pretty much turned around and said, you should be happy about the privilege to be at this club. And he and he just sort of turned around and said, hang on, I'm, I am happy about the privilege, but you're asking me to make a decision on life or death. Um, I think you should be paying for that, <laughs> you know, because yeah. if I get it wrong, you know, this is that's a big decision. You're you're just thinking of, you know, are we going to play a particular player? Uh, how many, you know, how much staff do we need to put here, there, and everywhere? I'm here, <laughs> life or death, and they didn't see the value in that. And um, yeah, no, I agree. I, I definitely agree. And the other thing is, I, I have seen uh, clinicians uh, that, you know, I'm not going to name any names or anything like that, but that have been, you know, they've gone to one clinic and then gone to another clinic because of the pay. Um, they want more pay. And uh, they've sort of said to me, well, you know, I've done this, you know, I've had my master's and this, this and this. 
and they're just just because of their CV, they expect a certain amount of pay. And it's just like, well, hang on, you haven't proven yourself. Like for them to give you that pay, you do need to have that full list. Like, well, you know, and they, and they start and they don't actually get, um, you know, people coming through. And like you're saying, they've got these huge holes. And I've start look, I've I've worked over twenty clinics, including yours, um, and I must admit, yours was one of my favourite um, because you taught me a lot. And what you taught me, and it was very early on, um, was when you have a gap, don't do nothing. <laughs> you know, you know the one thing that I really did, and it, funnily enough, I did it on the weekend. You used to give us, and this was before computers, so we had these filing <laughs> cabinets of case notes. <laughs> And I would have have this pile of case notes and it was where patients you hadn't seen for three months, you haven't necessarily discharged them, um, and what you wanted us to do was to ring them up and see where they were going. And I must admit I did this uh, actually on the weekend um, with a couple of my patients. I thought, hang on, what, what ended up happening to them? And the amount of people that actually are happy that you've rung up to check in because that's something that we don't do. Um, And, you know, out of that, like I I rung five and I got three to come back. Um, And it was just, it it was more just following up because I hadn't been at the clinic for a couple of uh, months because I did hand up my PhD and they actually wanted to book in but didn't know when I was back. Um, But it's just that, you know, that extra little step, you know, you can always... uh, I think Luke wants to ask a question. <laughs> that was that's my secret sign that I was putting my hand up. I was enjoying Susanna's story. <laughs> I, don't mean that's to right. yeah. I don't mean to interrupt. Go on. Oh, I've, I've lost my train of thought. But, I mean, it was, it was more that what you're saying is, and I, I agree, particularly in private practice, um, it shouldn't be about the clinic and them paying you. It should be your your own little business and you've got to grow yourself. And then when you can show that, you know, you're actually a, quite a good commodity, you're making the money, you're getting um, a lot of patients through, a lot of referrals, yeah, you know, adding this and the other. Like I was at a clinic where I was one of the busiest and they would ha- they had a social media, you know, they had an Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And it was interesting. They were, anything the clinicians would do, they'd put on there. And I looked, and over three months, it was just me. <laughs> you know, oh, Susanna's published this paper. Susanna's off to this football club. Susanna's um, doing this, that, and the other. She's teaching here, you know. And the others were, like you're saying, they were just, you know, going to the clinic, doing what they needed, but they weren't doing that extra step. And I think the amount that you learn from doing other things is huge that you can do outside of the clinic. I mean, that's why I will never give up working with teams because I love the fact that you see acute injuries because you don't see acute injuries in the clinic. And so the nice thing is, is you can see how they happened. Um, And you can also see what happens when you do do a failed return to play, you know, because then you can actually think about what is it that you've done? You know, was it out of your control? Was it, you know, that they were always going to, uh, you know, like a trauma or something, so, and that led to a re-injury or something. But you can reflect on what you did. Um, and I guess the other thing, and I think I'm overtaking this podcast and I'm very sorry about that, but at the okay. same time I'm very passionate because um, your clinic was fantastic. I remember you were putting all these things in place that when people would ring up and one of the questions was, you know, how much is it uh, to see the physio? You taught your staff to not give an answer straight away because, the, you know, the, your sort of thing was that they're just going to be comparing, you know, one clinic to the other and whichever's cheapest, that's the way that they're going to go. And it's just, and what you taught, and I, and it sort of really resonated with me, was your staff would say, well, this is what you're getting. So, you know, you're coming in, you're going to get an experienced physio, A, B, C, D, and by the end of that list of all the stuff that they're getting, then you'd give them the price so that they could understand 
you know, why it was like that. Um, and it, it's just that adding the value of what we do. It's not that you just go see someone and that's it. Yeah, a lot of patients think we're all the same and we're not. Um, and that's why if you just go by cost, as you said, it's um, they've got nothing else to compare it against. Patients don't have that ability. So we always, as you said, we'd always make sure we told them the cost because that's what they asked and people do. There are some people who are cost sensitive, but we also wanted to um, let them know how much value we could add to, and that's really the difference. Um, if I can just say one other comment on the follow-up you said we got you to do. Um, yeah, it's not just, it wasn't just, and I think this is one of the things that I really want to emphasise to a lot of young clinicians. It's not just business. It's actually really good practice. Patients, there's research, there's a lot of research being done in this uh, in this area of patient expectations when they come into a clinic. Clients love follow-up. They do. And I think a lot of, it's, it's not me just saying it, to, you know, it was great to hear you got what three out of five rebook. But even if you got zero out of five rebooked, it doesn't, if the client actually got something from that phone call or even a text or whatever it is, a phone call is always more personal. It means that they're going to consider you more next time they have something to come back for. And I've always got to believe if you're a clinician, and I had this conversation with the practice owner this morning, um, I said, if you're a clinician, or in a practice that shares a philosophy like we did, which was our motto was optimal lifelong musculoskeletal health. So we wanted people to be optimized. We wanted people to have a lifelong relationship with us. And we know that if they, I know that if they went to another clinician, the odds are less likely they'll see somebody who's got that altruistic person-centered care philosophy. And they might just see somebody who just puts them in through, you know, just a constant mill of hands-on therapy only and gets them into a dependent sort of thing. I don't want patients to do that. So I don't want to lose them just because we haven't followed people up. I've always said to my staff, if you believe in what you do, then you'll have no hang up on following up clients who've cancelled. And in fact, yeah, I always said to just finally on that, I never said, one thing I'd always say is if you had a bad relationship with that client, if something happened, it was pretty, you know, they, they didn't come back and they said they won't come back. There's no point following them up. They don't come back. But for clients, like you said, Susanna, where you've seen them, you think, oh, what happened to them? I wonder how they're doing. They are great clients to follow up. It's not either or. It's not like you should follow up every client or nor don't follow up any client. It's got to... I always, we got better and better. We selected our clients. I didn't want the physios to be just dreading that phone call. You know, I never had a rule. Every physio, every client had to be followed up. What I did say is every client that you had a good relationship with, it, either you discharged them because they achieved all their goals or they cancelled, but they said they were feeling great. Just give them a call. Just see how they're pulling up. And clients love that. And it, that's the sort of little things that really do build your list without always having to rely on new patients. The best clinicians hardly see many new patients whatsoever because they've got repeat clients or the ones they do see are clients from friends and family of those clients. Sorry, Luke, you've been wanting to say something for ages. So. No, no, this is a key interview skill. Let him talk. And I'll tell you all these interesting things. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm partway to answering my, my question, which is on my list here, which is how do you build a list? So one of the big ways is to you know, make sure you're following up on people, not to just rely on new clients to come in. No. Um, what other strategies and tips can you share with people to, to help well, them build that list in those early years? So we did, um, I was part of a massive study and we had, just to give you an example, it was, we did one, we had 1,000 clients um, randomly chosen amongst our database to follow up qualitative questions. So we didn't do it. We actually got an external company to do it. So we got rid of biases because it's no doubt when you do these questions, people always will give you a higher inflated score because they don't they don't want to upset you. Um, so when you've got an external company, we gave them a thousand randomized names and they interviewed them. And you know, what did you love or hate about our practice? Basically, there was much more to it than that. But um, we did five surveys, a thousand clients each time, six months apart. So over three years, we did these surveys and 
there was two consistent things that didn't require, well, part of one of them would have required some absolute skills, but not always the skills in your um, exercise prescription, your manual therapy, et cetera, just in good communication skills. One was clients expect results. It's not rocket science, but they expect results. And in the early stages of care, it's usually pain relief. And I see a lot of physios coming in, particularly in the acute stages of care, where they, they, they've gone to a course, they've loved doing all these contribute, looking at all the contributing factors, and I love that stuff too. But they spend all their time assessing and not actually any time dealing with what the patients come in for. You know, when a patient writes a goal, like reduce pain, which is a pretty nebulous term, but yeah. that's really important. That means that, you know, I sit down and say to my client, so look, today, what we'll do then is we'll focus on something we can hopefully help leave you with less pain than when you came in. And I think that's got lost a lot in translation. Patients' expectations are they're going to walk in like this and hopefully leave with some less pain and some self-management strategies that they can maintain in between. And research says that too, but our own research said that. So you've got to actually leave feeling better. Really interesting. I remember way back, and you two probably had the same lecturer, Ali Bell. Mm-hmm. If you have Ali, now Ali would say, to, "Oh, you weren't Adelaide trained, were you, Luke?" No, I did my masters oh, in okay. Adelaide, but not undergrad. So, but Ali would say to us, and same with Peter Roberts, both of them would say, "You can't let a patient leave with until you've had some impact." Mm-hmm. And that was back in second year, third year, fourth year, and it really hit home for me. And hearing that research that we did, and more recent recent research that's been done, um, that's published too, is Clients expect results, but, and I think you just have to listen to your client. So the reason I'm saying it's not necessarily better skills, it is better skills, but a lot of those skills are communication and motivational interviewing. Yeah, and and it's not necessarily, and you could get that really early as a clinician. You don't have to be, it doesn't mean you do a PA somewhat better or you prescribe a, 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 um, a strength and conditioning program better. It's just simply listening to your clients. And I see that misconnect a lot. You know, if a patient says to me, different story, like they said, James, and I hear this time more often with chronic issues, patients say, I just really want to know what's going on. Why am I getting this problem over and over again? So then I couch the convert, then my assessment and my treatment is, is very different to somebody who says pain relief. Yeah, I'm going to spend more time. And I ask them, so does that, you're right then today, if we spend more time on assessing you, we may not get to treatment and getting that buy-in, that that therapeutic alliance, that doesn't take huge amount of experience to do that. But that's what clients are wanting. The second thing is even simpler. And this is again from our research. And as I said, it's a thousand patients, five surveys, each time, 1,000 patients each time, not over the journey. So 5,000 clients. And we looked at key, what were the key things qualitatively they were looking at? And the other one was just simply being friendly. But it was friendly, right? not just from the clinician, this was from the whole team. <clears throat> and so we just, you know, friendliness isn't, isn't a skill. It is a skill, but it's not something you have to learn at university. So friendly just means like, yeah, it doesn't mean that when somebody walks in, they have to have flash, you know, confetti falls down on them. And, you know, you have a barista, although that would be nice, have a barista <laughs> serving your coffee as you walk in. It just simply is friendly and is remembering their name, remembering something about their life outside of the, the their actual condition. You know, remembering yeah. they're a human being, they're not a knee or they're not a bad back or a radiculopathy. They're actually a person who's got a radiculopathy who's having difficulty walking their dog and can't pick up their grandkids and loves listening to, you know, Taylor Swift for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, knowing those sort of things, what I'm getting at is you know a little bit about them, um, goes such a long way and patients absolutely love it. And that's what builds you up to be different to the next clinician. When you, because everybody expects when they see a physio, you're going to give them pain relief. It's an expectation. People go to a physio. It's like you go to a dentist with a toothache. You expect to leave with something less. So it doesn't separate you from anybody else. What separates you is that you actually show that you care and you're friendly and you're warm. Make a difference. Make a difference, and but be also be friendly. It's not, and that's the thing. It's not hard, and that's what. And that's why I'm saying. Some of my best clinicians were only two years out. 
it makes it that first year is learning, but some of them were better. But some of my best clinicians over my owning practices were two years out and they had full lists. And we would actually, the easiest thing then to do is actually charge charge more for their care. Um, and, you know, I, as I said, I, coming back to my original thing is, I'm all for getting physios paid more because I think we are underpaid as generally as a profession. But the market will dictate you as the individual. If, you, if you're close to full, and I don't mean a full, see, we always had a different definition of full. Our definition of full uh, was 60 to 80% of our diary was full. That's full. Because if you're living 80 to 100%, you're not able to continue to do the things sustainably both mentally, but also just practically that got you to that point first, writing your doctor's letters, developing a treatment plan for each client, having downtime. You know, I heard Alison Grimaldi speak only this week and I, she was so spot on with, it's exactly what I said to all the people I said. And I thought, gosh, it's good to hear someone like Alison say it too. She was saying, you need to spend time between that first visit and the second visit to really nuss out that client what gaps have you missed? You know, what have you missed in that first assessment? It's no surprise we called ourselves the second visit. That's why we called it that because the first visit, you can get away with being nice, friendly, but remember, result, results are still number one. Very close number two is friendliness. Patients will give you, if you're nice to them and they sh- you show that you care, a second chance. And I always say that to new grads. They'll give you a second chance, most of them. They're not going to give you a third chance. So you need to sit down with a mentor, sit down with, you know, textbook, clinical sportsman, whatever it is. If you have never seen it before, just do something. You, you'll find something you can do. But between that first and second visit, get swatted up, become an expert, realize the things you might have missed, and then get better at it. And every time you do that, you actually get a little bit more skill. You learn new things. And what happens is it's not new for you the next time around. It's, it's There's a little bit more you learn. And, yeah, I always say to the new graduates, it will take you a bit longer each time, but you're going to save yourself in the long run because you're going to get results quicker. So, I, again, like I said, I would never say to a young clinician, be bound by how long you've worked in a place or be bound by, be bound by your list. If you are a physio who's getting so many word of mouth referrals, you are doing something right and you're doing something exceptional and you don't have to be a certain age. You've just got to be a good listener who cares, who's warm and friendly and is results driven. Mm. Susanna, you um, have been always been good at building and maintaining a list and doing a lot of the things that James is suggesting here. So what are your thoughts on how do you, and you build and maintain a list and still maintain the quality of care with people. I think I think um, James sort of said it, you know, it's not, it's not the knee pain or the back pain. It's, you know, put it into context for them. Um, like, for example, knee pain, most knee pain is aggravated by stairs. Um, and I've, I've just uh, done some tutoring on the, the GLAD program, which is um, people can look that up, but... Um, it's, you know, it's a program that has education, exercise, um, oh, and there's a third one now, I've forgotten, but, um, I'm going to get <laughs> in trouble for not knowing, but, um, in terms of it, you know, it, it's a package, but the thing is that, um, I teach other physios is figure out, you know, the real context of the stairs, you know, what height of the stairs, where are these stairs, um, because often that's a goal is to, you know, get up and down the stairs without fearing them, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I had some examples of, you know, had one lady going up and down um, a step on a tram in Melbourne, uh, and in particularly Melbourne, that the steps can be quite uh, a fair way from, you know, the ground to that first step, depending on which stop you're at. Um, I had another lady who unfortunately was a Collingwood fan uh, which is a football club here in Australia, and uh, she hated the steps at the MCG um, because they were sort of narrow and a bit long and she just always felt like she was going to trip over them. Um, and then I had the third lady who the, the steps that she hated was she loved ballet and so she, she'd go to the ballet all the time. But because she had difficulty with the stairs and people were too polite to overtake her, she'd had this whole, you know, line of people wanting to get to their seats and it just really 
gave her this anxiety. Um, and, you know, they, they went through this program. But when we did the exercises, you know, I really was putting it into context why they were doing it. Let's get going. Let's do this. And by the end of it, you know, they're giving you hugs. They're, you've changed their life because, you know, there was this lady now, her social interaction with her friends, she didn't care which stop she was going to get off. Um, when she did the tram because she knew she could go to any step now mm. because she not only got to the height that she hated but she could go beyond it because that's what we did um the same with the the ballet she was just so happy she goes oh I was even beating other people up the stairs and there was one person in front of her that she thought she should overtake you know she was laughing she thought this was fantastic um and then the third one well, unfortunately, her team got into the grand final, which is not the best for everybody, but it was good for her. She got to go to it um, and not worry about, you know, where the car was parked or how she was going to get through the crowd afterwards because her knee would have blown up. So really getting the context of the person. And I think the the real key is, well, and I think um, new grads don't do it and whether it's a confidence thing, but when I'm doing an objective, so this is where you're saying, James, you know, do you mind if, you know, we, you know, if this is what they need, they need to see what you're seeing um, with the objective, with the assessment. I'll always tell them what I'm seeing. Like I'll be like, oh, see with this test, see how stiff your hip is. And they'll look at me and I always look. And if they look at me as if like I'm a little bit crazy, I'll go, <laughs> oh, stop. I'm going to test, look, we'll go back to your other side because I always do the good side first, but we'll go back to the other side and I want you to feel that and they'll feel that. And then I'll come back and i can you see how that's different? And then it becomes more meaningful for them. Um, and so I'll talk them through what I'm seeing whilst I'm doing it. And I think that's really, really helpful. And at the end of, you know, the treatment, and this is where you're saying, you know, that second visit, I always set up that second visit because I always tell them this is what we found. So those asterisk points. And if I've got them doing exercises, et cetera, I let them know next time I see you, we're going to retest those. And this is what I want. And, and that way it gives them sort of uh, the power that, you know, they need to do the exercises because I'll know if they haven't been doing them. And, and, you know, your dynamometry, like your strength testing, where you've got numbers, that's really, really nice because you say, oh, next time I want these numbers to be better. And they come back and, and they actually get disappointed if you don't retest them. Um, but then it gives them the interest in getting themselves better. And that's what you were saying, James, is you don't want to be where they're dependent on you all the time. You want them to do, and sometimes I will say, you know, I want you to do this home as homework. And we laugh and everything, but it just, it gets them. And then, you know, I've had that many people that, like you're saying, then you get all the family and friends coming in because they'll discuss what you, your, their treatment plan with their friends. Oh, I went to the physio and she said, I've got to do this, 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 this. And then, then the family and friends are like, oh, hang on, who, who are you seeing? <laughs> are you, you've got a plan, like, you know, because not everyone um does plans and you know that like you said they might just is is that true yeah that's is that true did they does not everyone do plans or is it the skill of making of meeting the person in on their terms and making sure they understand their plan is that more where it's at because i feel like we all do a similar thing but there's a big difference between the physio who's who's got the client to really understand what they're doing and buy in, as James said before, and the person who can't tell you what they're doing, something's missing there. Well, I guess that that's where you do that teach back technique. Um, and I'll do that as well. So maybe that that's where it, it's going wrong for some clinicians. Cause look, I see a lot of uh, patients that have been referred to me because they've seen a lot of other people and it hasn't helped. Um, and I will ask what they've done. And to be honest, I would probably have done exactly the same thing. Um, but the difference is, is I do spend a bit on education um, and going through it and figuring out the education, tailor, uh, tailoring it to them. So what is it that they, they need that context to them? Like a lot of people know, okay, I, I'm doing core exercises. And I'm like, why are you doing core exercises? You know, and they can't tell me. So I'd, that's how my back's going to get better, you know. And then I'm like, okay, so I'll sit down and we'll, we'll talk about it. 
And I always get people, well, not always, but I often get people like, oh, no one's described it to me like that. And I don't think that the knowledge is the same, but the way that I'm saying it back to them is I'm trying to figure out how they understand. And then I'll ask them, okay, so what do you think? Or, um, you know, tell me about what I've just said, you know, or I'll ask them, okay, can you now tell me by the next stage, like next week, what are the things that you're going to do? You know, so that I know yeah. they, it's not, uh, I was going to do some exercises, is that right? You know, like, because sometimes, and this is where particularly as a new grad, time is just goes quickly and you just sort of, okay, see, and you've got to get to the next one and you forget that it's really important that you do set up that second visit to be successful. Um, yeah. And you do need those asterisk points. You know, what are you going to reassess? Because, you know, they want you to remember them so that when you do see them, it's like you can actually say, and I often will say, oh, remember last week how bad this was. And they'll remember and then they they acknowledge that I remember and then they become a person rather than just a, a presentation. Yeah, this is really valuable. Um, James, the perennial podcast question, Let's, mm-hmm. which we've already been on the whole time. I feel like this is a continuation of what you both have been saying. And it's what do you think the most important foundational knowledge and skills are for health professionals? Do we, I mean, just to sum up, I mean, you've been talking about the, the importance of, you know, getting results and being friendly in, in order to make sure that you've got enough time to help people if they're not getting mixed messages and going somewhere else. And you do need to actually have them in the room with you to treat them as well. Yeah, and then there's, the, there's the business, yeah, or, or telehealth. I mean, I mean, you have to still be their health professional in order to help yep. them. Um, and then just thinking of if we can get to some of the knowledge and skills that you might mentor your grads to develop sure. you know, I, as they I, come along. Can I see if I can share a screen? Is that all right? Go for it. So I'll just, is that coming up? It is. Yep. Okay. So, yeah, thanks for asking this question. This is a survey that um, I did last year. To 227 employers responded. And what I asked them was, your new graduates, what do you see as their biggest, uh, the biggest areas for them to improve upon their weaknesses when they graduate? You can see... Um, you know, there was, and also why they undertreat, because that's the other thing I wanted to share with them is they horribly undertreat. They, so one thing was, this is, undertreatment was one of them. And I, and I would say that's one of the biggest weaknesses of all young clinicians. And I, I want to, I think that's probably one of the strongest and the easiest things to change. That's the thing. This is the one that doesn't matter how many times I, induct my staff it doesn't matter how many times i speak to physios it's the biggest issue i think that's easily solved the second one that employers said it's not in this survey it's another study was poor manual therapy skills third one was poor prescription of exercise skills so the big three were under treating and this is a survey looking at the what the employer perceived the reason and I'm working on now looking at what um, what I'm looking at now is why, what do new graduates think about it? Um, so I can only give you anecdotal stuff there. But the other big three, under-treating, poor manual therapy skills, and poor exercise prescription skills. Can I add it? I reckon the last two are more, except some universities, I know some universities, some in Victoria and New South Wales have completely stopped manual therapy training. So it's very hard to have skill acquisition if you weren't even given foundational skills. Um, that's very concerning for me because I think it's one of our key points of difference. Um, that's another soapbox you're going to get me right on if I take myself down that path um, because it scares me. But if I just stick with the under-treatment, because honestly, I think it's the easiest one to solve. I'll talk about you know the reasons why in a moment that employers think, but if I can just say the simplest thing, because I mentor physios all around Australia, and what I consistently look at, what I consistently see is that they under-treat, and so they confirm that they're no good which is really the, the, the imposter syndrome that they're not very good is confirmed by under-treating early on acute patients. Yeah. So 
I say to them, look, the reason the person didn't feel good, it doesn't, the reason the person's cancelled is that if you look, if you actually track it, what actually happened in that patient journey, and we've done that, we've actually got practice managers to ring up the patient and say, look, can I ask what happened? You know, why did you cancel it? And consistently it was, they often felt a lot of relief for two or three days. And that's the time when they should have rebooked. When you've got improvement, the person's less fearful, they're more confident in the future. You've got some, that's when manual therapy has its maximum impacts if you're doing it early on. It's a chance to change your exercises, et cetera. But if you can see them in that window, you can capitalize on that momentum and treat them again. If you leave it like a lot of them do for 7, 10, 12, 14 days even, you get them back to a square one and people are thinking, well, I'm not better. I'm not much better. And that's what we hear consistently. Um, I can tell you some anecdotal stories, but let me just come back to this one. Is I just say to, I've said to, I say to all these physios who are under treating, can you just do this for me in the next two, three weeks? Every new patient you see, who's an acute patient, you know, is coming in with a condition in the first six weeks. Can you see them twice a week for, for two weeks? Can you just do that? Don't have to change anything you're doing. I mean, hopefully you will change each visit, but you don't have to. I'm not asking you to treat better with manual therapy, treat better with exercise. Just see them more frequently and just see what happens to the outcomes. And, of course, every, and I can say this 100% of the time, every time they've done it, the patients have got better. I've got significant improvement. And I said, it's, see, it's not what you're doing. It's just this case, it's just a frequency issue. You're just not seeing them enough early up front. There's reasons why people are afraid of over of under treatment. And that's what this is this board bears this out. But just see them enough that you can make an impact. And it's a sort of a snowball effect. If you actually see people regularly enough to make an impact, patients will give you positive feedback, feed forward mechanisms, and you'll reinforce that that's the right thing to do and you'll do it more often. And you'll have more confidence in how you deliver that more often. And when you're more confident, just like Susanna said, you know, you can then go into more detail with your clients. You can dig deep. You've got opportunities to make more significant long-term change. Um, but while you're under treat, you're just putting yourself at, at, under huge pressure and patients want results. That's what patients have come to see you for. And ironically, the biggest concern, it was number three here is, and I ask this regularly when I teach, a lot of them are concerned that they're going to be seen as an over-treater. And I can tell you having, you mentioned I was the work cover advisor for, I was for eight years and one of my least pleasant jobs was reviewing physios for over-treatment. And the reality was in those eight years, and I've spoken to Cassandra Zayner, who's taken over for me in South Australia. And she's the same. You just don't see it that often. Overtreatment is not in our DNA. There's a few rogues out there's a few rogues out there, but it's it's so rare. Um, some people are stuck, they don't understand the systems, they don't understand the goals of return to work, but it's just lack of education. It's not a desire to be seeing a lot of people to make money. And so my point first point is stop being hung up. It is not in our DNA to be over-treating. Treat the person with the appropriate treatment for see they need. Could you imagine, Susanna, if you were working with the elite clubs you work with and you said to – and they came in for treatment and you said, oh, look, let's see you in two weeks. They'd be looking at you like, are you nuts? Sports physios are treating people once or twice a day in some of the elite clubs or in the Olympics and so on. So I don't understand quite where we got where we got to this point where people think that – once a fortnight or once a week is a recipe. It's no evidence for it. Um, but it's just what people do because it's never been discussed. Um, the other big one is financial concerns, and there's the irony too. I can tell you again from that study from our own research, when we did those uh, 1,000 patients each survey, we also we, – people gave us low scores. We asked, what could we do to get closer? The only time people queried price – is when we didn't give them results. So it doesn't matter if you're paying a dollar or a thousand dollars. If there's no value in what you're delivering, that dollar's still not worth anything. That thousand dollars is worth nothing as well. So is the, this, a, in many ways, a proxy for underconfidence, in financial concerns for the patient? 
Well, it's also because they're young. They're young. They haven't had much money. Well, I wouldn't pay for this much. Right. Yes, but the clients aren't coming here to see you to save money. Yeah, you know, I've said I've said to everybody I mentor. I've never had a physio a patient come to me and say, "James, I've come to see you because I've heard you're good at saving me money." I've heard exactly what Susanna said. When you get word of mouth, I've come to see you because I've heard you've actually solved my friends, my cousins, mm. my partner's problem when nobody else could. Mm. They are the sort of things that actually patients come in. And those patients aren't coming to see you for money saving. They're coming to see you because you did something above and beyond everybody else. And often it is because you dug a bit deeper. You spent more time asking questions. You actually understood their problem better, like their challenges, how it's affecting them day to day better. You just listen to them. You added value. And honestly, then the money is not that important at all. There's a few people who are price sensitive, but it is so few, so rare. It is mm-hmm. not a common feature. People don't come thinking, I'm going to see the physio to save money. That's how I'm coming to the physio so I can actually pick up my grandkids again or do a half marathon again or whatever mm-hmm. their goals are. That's the things I can't do it. And I want to be able to do it again. And are the things that people see you for. Mm. And I, th- I think with the over-treating, I mean, I, I do see being, you know, like a secondary or tertiary sort of practitioner that people have gone to, um, the ones that I've seen that have been over-treated, it, it's really the... I don't don't know whether it's out of laziness or what, but they're you know they're seeing the the person. They're not getting the result, which is what you're saying. They want the result. They want to get better, and they're given exactly the same treatment. And then you know they've left it, and so then they come back next week, same result, still haven't you know it might have got better over a few days, but then it's back to where it was, and they give the same treatment, and they give the same treatment, and you know and they get embarrassed to actually say. You know, it, it's not working. Can we try something else? They, they, they actually won't say it. So having those asterisk points, because sometimes pain is the last thing that gets better as well. So making, mm. sure, oh, absolutely. making sure that what you're doing is giving them some sort of change um, and so that then you are able to get them to keep going. So there should be, you shouldn't, um, you know, it's, it's that clinical reasoning. I've given them to do this and then they come back. Are they better, worse, same? You know, what worked, what didn't, you know, and discuss it with them as well. Like if I've had people come back worse and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I know it's bad for you, but actually this is telling us something. We've Maybe we've done the right thing, but we've done too much, you know. I always tell them that. I'll say to them, I'd much rather if I'm sorry. Oh, first, I always apologize, as you said. Don't, mm. don't be afraid to apologize. Mm. And I say that I'm sorry that you saw it, but at least it tells me we're on the right mark. We mm. need to change what we're doing. I'd much, I say to them, I'd much rather have got flaring you up means I've actually at least um, helped identify the poten- one of the potential sources of your symptoms. But, but um, we've got to change what we do. I'd much rather that than actually not make any change because I've missed something completely then. If I've done no no change, that's a much worse um, thing for me because I've missed completely something that uh, I should have picked up. And it it shows you that, like you said, so A, it might have, yes, we've got the right thing, but we've gone too hard. Or B, if you're really not expecting that, hang on, something else might be coming up. And and now is a great time to look at that because, you know, you might need to refer on or whatever. But Mm. um, And just to understand, I think it... I remember coming out as a new grad thinking that if I didn't get the patient better, it was me, you know, like I've done something wrong. And like you said, knowing that we're not going to get everybody better, you know, sometimes it's it's inappropriate. They might have something else, like they might have a red flag. Um, Mm. But knowing that you can refer, I've had had people where um, the clinician has said, I can't do anything else for you because they kept flaring them up. Um, and has said, you know, you, you might have cancer or something. And then they've gone and followed it up and they don't have cancer. But it, it's just sometimes it's not, sometimes just referring to someone else, whether that's a physio or whether it's a doctor or whatever, that is the treatment, giving them a plan. I always say that to, to patients because often that's that's where they get disappointed is when they don't have a plan. 
And I said, no. we need a plan. And this is what, you know, this is where we're going. This is where we need to go. Um, and if it's not working, then we need to change that. And that's sometimes if you can't convey that to someone that, you know, if it's not going the way that we're going, we need to change it. They'll just think that you've done the wrong thing and they're not necessarily going to tell you either. And that was the other thing that I was going to say about the ringing up of people. It's not only is it good to understand, you know, maybe you can get them back, but it's also that, you know, you, you've got all these publications on case studies and case series, et cetera, so your, your clientele. You can figure out whether you're good or bad at, at doing presentations just by ringing people up because, you know, if someone doesn't have necessarily a good outcome with what you've done with them, they're not going to necessarily come back and you won't necessarily know, um, you know, they're not on your radar. But if you've rung them up and followed up and said, well, actually, I've now gone and seen a Cairo or I've gone and seen someone else and now they're helping me or I'm still in the same position, um, it really then uh, informs you as well of um, your own sort of abilities and what you need to do. and. Um, so I think when things aren't going well, you can really learn. And what is it? Oh, there's all these sayings of, you know, learning is best when you're you're down, you know, because when everything's going well, the learning opportunities are limited because everything's yep. going well. But when things aren't going well, the learning opportunities are huge. Um, yep. So, yeah. No, agree, 100%. There's, um, I'm mindful of your time, James. There's so much more we could go into here, and hopefully, we can do another episode sure. um, in the future. But speaking of um, of money, people pay good money for your courses as well. So you've got the um, the courses all on your site, your website, the second yeah. visit, yeah. Uh, and you've just been in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia, um, teaching. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing and. Um, where people can oh, find you, you online um, and your and yeah, your courses, sure. just sort of filling that gap in some yeah, of the, sure. the problems we've been talking about here. So, um, look, if you the best the best way to I guess connect with me and to connect with um, you know a lot of a uh, lot of experts in the field, second visit on Facebook is a uh, is um, open to any clinician to join, and it's really it's us giving our own opinions. Sometimes it's bringing up research that's just been published. Sometimes people don't like hearing the research, as I discovered this week, but the research is the research. But also at the same time, it's it's a, it's our own points of view as well. It's a really nice way to engage, and and I would highly encourage anybody, particularly young people who haven't, haven't done it, to actually do this because I guess, not I guess, the thing that I really worry about social media, even though that is social media, is often social media now, and there's some studies to show that often influences young clinicians' decisions of how to manage clients more than the research. Interesting. You know, it, yeah. the, the dog that's got the bigger bark on social media determines their choice of therapy rather than actually critical thinking. And also... Um, yeah, and I've seen I've seen a lot of physios just say, "Oh, I've heard there's no research to back up manual therapy." And where have you heard that? Oh, social media. Well, actually, if you go in and actually go to a Google, or go to PubMed and actually put in uh, evidence for you know, tennis elbow and evidence for um, you know, plantar fasciopathy and so on, you'll actually be surprised how much evidence there is and very high level evidence for a lot of manual therapy. That's just an example. And I think we just need to, that's why I guess we've done this is we want to bring a bit of balance. Um, if people are interested in doing our courses, um, we've got three big ones. Um, and that really came out of how this whole, how I created a second visit was out of me being an employer and having large teams and realizing many, many years ago that I couldn't rely on the universities to get the standards up because there's so much they've got to learn. So I had to do it. You know, I've got to take the responsibility. If I want to get great results for the patients who come in to see us, it's my responsibility to upskill my staff. And so I wanted staff to share that. So that came out of that. And we created three courses, um, two original ones, and we've got a third one that's just launching. The first one was Master in Clinical Excellence. We've changed it to how not to be a crap physio because 
uh, Peter Eckhart, who's a sports physio, who, whose daughter was finishing her physio. She said, that's such a lame name, James. And dad so she said it's really she looked at she said it's really just not how to be a crap physio and i think it is it's basically clinical reasoning 101 um which is that i was talking about things like reassessing and reassessing consistently not changing reassessments each session so you don't so your goalposts keep changing mm. all those sort of basics which have got lost a lot because it's just they're not exposed to the number of patients that perhaps we saw as students so they just didn't get the exposure so that course is all about treatment planning um, treatment frequency um, and so we did it for my staff and it became sort of evolved to being asked to do it privately externally which is what's happened right. the, the second one is probably the one that we're most known for and that's the manual to great therapy you know um, I do with Kieran Richardson and um, we both just wanted to bring balance you know we're both Star Wars nuts. We sort of balanced us. <laughs> we wanted to rebalance to the force because there's been a lot of social media and it's diminishing, thankfully, being very anti manual therapy. And as um, it was coined by a colleague of mine, you know, we're getting a generation of Bluetooth physios, ones who want to be hands free. And there are a lot of patients who expect when they see a clinician that you're going to lay hands on. Now, some of them will need a lot, some won't need much at all, if any at all. But a lot of patients expect that, and we've lost a lot of our skills. Um, and a lot of physios are almost embarrassed, and that some are, to do hands-on treatment. And yet our clients are begging for it. And it's one of the still remains to me one of the biggest ways to build a therapeutic alliance. So you can get the people, you know, give them what they want so you can give them what they need. Um, and it's so we just we've what we've done is we've created a course that actually talks about how what's contemporary science what's contemporary science saying how manual therapy works it's got rid of all of that stuff which we never learned thankfully Susanna and I being uni SA trained convex concave rules I was heard Kieran talking about it and people in Victoria and I'm thinking I don't even know what that is <laughs> yeah I was taught by Jeff Maitland directly I was I was in this last year in a postgraduate and we never got it just didn't exist but those sort of terms and stretching scar tissue, putting discs back in, all that sort of stuff. No wonder it's actually had the sometimes bad reputation it has, because but because it, it's it's not what it does, obviously. And I'm speaking to two who know that. But gosh, it's a powerful tool to mediate pain short term to get to get patients to actually feel more confident, reduce fear, and get them to become more active. So I think it can be really used nicely in contemporary science. Um, and so we just want to give people some information so they can understand it better and then get some extra skills. And we're also just finally doing one on exercise as well, because um, also mainly out of, because I think people just see me labelled now as a manual therapist. I never was just a manual therapist. You know, anybody who's done a master's like all of us have and people have gone in specialisation, we know that it's just not manual therapy, it's just exercise. It's, it's, it's selecting what client needs individually uh, using clinical reasoning and then applying it to that individual. So we're doing well on exercise as well, just because, again, we want people to be skilled and the employers are saying that our big three areas they want skilling in. Exercise, prescription, and it's more the buy-in again. How do you get a client to actually become, to follow it up? It's not how well you prescribe in interranged quads. I can't remember the last time I've ever prescribed that, but just doing that as a basic. It's not how, it's how you get the person to commit to it and how you progress it. And uh, how do you get, the, just like, and the same with manual therapy and the same with clinical reasoning. If we can get those three sorted, we're going to get great results for our clients, which again, coming back to my original comment is, if you want to be paid well, just get results for your clients. Mm. Achieve, Get really clear goals from your clients, what they want to achieve, and help work with them to help them achieve their own goals. And I think, I think James, mm. you're right, because you're adding that link because universities, I think there's so much that you can teach people um, without the experience. So you think of evidence-based practice, you know, you've got the research in there, you've got the individual, but you also have a huge amount there that contributes to both of those, which is the clinical experience of 100%. the clinician. And I think what you're saying and why your courses are, you know, really gaining traction and are quite successful is, you know, you learn the research, 
And you'll start learning, you know, the individual through your case studies and um, based learning, et cetera, at the uni. But it's not until you start coming out, getting a little bit of clinical experience and then going into your course that whatever you learn there is going to be more meaningful and you're really going to grab hold of it. And if you can get it in those first few years, it can really increase your confidence because there isn't that sort of bridge of what the university teach you and then now you're in the workforce because like Luke said right at the beginning it's when you start that's when the real learning begins but there's no one really there to facilitate and that's why mentors are are really um, good but if you don't have a mentor doing something like your course you'll be introduced to so many people, so yeah. many different resources. Um, mm. And um, I, I congratulate you for for doing it and um, coming up with something like that because it's just... Um, it's oh, beautiful. thank you. Well, it just came out of, frust- not frustration, though. Kira and I were just hearing... A need. Um, a need. And Kira and I were hearing that people were just saying, oh, there's no evidence. They just throw it out there. There's no evidence. And it's frustrating when you know there is. When you when you do some research, there is level first line and second line evidence for a lot of manual therapy for most conditions. And it was actually just saying, we just need some balance here because we're going to end up in, you know, I've been asked a few times in podcasts and so on what's my concern for the profession and i am concerned if we're not great at prescribing exercise and we're not good at doing manual therapy doesn't leave us with a huge amount um and, and under treating as well pardon and, and under in there as well yeah, yeah i mean under treating honestly is easily solved if people just take a um just just yeah that one is the easiest one but yeah you're great but i think we offer so much, I think, to the community. You know, um, I think we're very holistic in general. I think we've now knowledge has never been higher. But that's also a double-edged sword is that knowledge is so much higher, it's hard to put it all together now, much more than it was. It was much simpler when everything was just do a PA. Um, yeah, not that it was ever like that or an ultrasound. I, not that I ever thought ultrasound did much, but um, but it was much simpler back then when it was very bio. Um, but I don't know if we're much better now that we're still not that much better that we know the psychosocial because we our, it's, our skills are so broad, but there's not enough to be able to put it all together. And I think clinical reasoning, to be honest, is the one that does that all. And I think that's, to me, if people ask me what's the biggest thing, it's actually putting a clinical reasoning together. Um, you can You can help somewhat nearly every client that walks in the door if you actually are just systematic and actually have a process which gets lost a bit. That's brilliant. We've um I'm mindful of time, so I reckon we I reckon yeah, we no, that's I'm, oh, yeah. I'm really enjoying the conversation. It feels like there's part two and three on the way, but we won't <laughs> impose on you, James. We're really grateful for your time. I'm sure Pleasure. the listeners are too. You're a highly sought after talk uh, speaker and presenter and educator. Um, and I've learned a lot from that conversation. So I'm sure others have as well. So thank you. Thank you. It was great to thank you so much for both of you inviting me along. And it's great to see you, even though you're 800 k's away. It's nice to actually see you sort of face to face on a screen anyway. Thanks yeah. for inviting me, guys. Always a good excuse to catch up, as I always Absolutely. say. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Susanna. Thanks, Thanks, Luke. Thank you very much. I'll wrap it up with my normal bit. So or Susanna was going to say. No, I was just saying thank you. It was fantastic. Thank you. All right. So until next time, this is James, Susanna and Luke wishing you all the best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. 